Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon. And today's episode is episode seven, which happens to be a recording from an older podcast I had done about a year and a half ago. And this is the third part of a very in-depth interview I had with screenwriter Randall Johnson. Randall Johnson, who wrote The Doors and The Mask of Zorro. The cool thing about this episode, he starts getting into the early stages of the research and writing for The Doors movie. A quick format clarification, in episode 9 of the Film Trooper podcast, which is coming up in two more episodes, we'll officially start the correct format of what the Film Trooper podcast is supposed to be about, which is helping filmmakers become entrepreneurs. So you can enjoy the first eight episodes of the Film Trooper podcast in its sort of general interview format of some local filmmakers here in Portland, Oregon. Okay, so let's get on with it. Our third part of our interview with screenwriter Randall Johnson. You had just basically made the deals, had your little um, your buddies help you celebrate the sale of the dudes, and I wanted to get into uh, sort of the production of dudes and sort of lead our way into um, the doors. Okay. Um, but what I wanted to tell you was like about a month ago I was um, down in Portland and uh, I came across this like you know weird books well, it was a comic book story thing but it, they had like a bunch of array of like unusual books in there too and they had a book it was like Punk in the Cinema or the American was it, Cinema was it um, uh, Floating World where you were at it was like in 5th in, uh, in Burnside yeah it's like just yeah it's just kind of just 5th and yeah, I think it's yeah, it's just right off uh, near. Um, it's near like uh, Chinatown. Just yeah, so that'd yeah. be a fifth. Yeah, yeah. It's floating, floating world. world. Yeah, they have a lot of counterculture stuff there. Okay, so that's it's a great store. Um, and uh, Jason uh, Levi- Levithan? Leviathan 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 sounds <laughs> yeah, cool. Leviathan. That was your last name. Yeah. Yeah, he's um, a wonderful guy, very friendly, and that's his store. And I love that store. That's actually got me really excited a lot about comics and uh and oh really novels yeah i kind of yeah. stumbled into because it was i was looking for mm-hmm. the 24-hour church of elvis oh yeah and it, i guess it used to be there but now they've closed whatever used to be there now it's just this hole in the wall right with this like weird display that has these buttons you tell ask you to push and you can't hear anything you can't hear anything it's yeah. like the most yeah. weird sort of like useless um yeah where so, so where is that now Exactly. I th- it's just on the other side of Burnside. So where it goes, Burnside. There's uh, Cooch. It's like yeah, it's fourth. It's right, it's right. Oh, right on there. the edge oh, okay. of uh, Chinatown. I didn't, re- I didn't realize it was it was yeah. that. I, I thought it was further up north. It might have been, but hmm. they changed it, and that's where the oh. new location. So right down the in the corner of that is that uh, comic book uh, counter culture um, bookstore. Yeah. But I was in there and I saw this book. It was like punk um, history, punk in the cinema, or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And there it was, like halfway through. Full full spread was like dudes had like a full spread of like your um, of the cover of the, the movie and like a little synopsis and it was really kind of cool. Get out of here, really? Yeah, I, 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 you didn't, I thought you might have known. No, that right I in. didn't. Okay, so we had to get that for you for Christmas. Or oh something. wow! <laughs> Just oh crap! I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah, yeah. It was. Well, I mean, it's a pretty thick book. I mean, it goes through like a bunch huh. of stuff of like about punk. Um, Reference or anything punk yeah. related in cinema, and this, you know, it's, it wasn't just like a little like picture yeah. and blurb. It was a full, I think it was a, it was a full page picture one side, and the other side was the write up. Mm. So anyway, 
I'll let you know it's out there. Oh, wow. So. Thank you. Well, <laughs> well, it's very interesting because, uh, you know, it was, Dudes was directed by Penelope Spheris, who, who really got on the map with uh, The Decline of Western Civilization, which was her, her documentary on the L.A. punk scene, you know, really circa 78, 79, 80, um, you know, with X and Fear and The Germs. You know, she had a lot of... It, a lot of footage of uh, uh, and interviews with Darby Crash, who would be dead, you know, in a very short amount of time. Um, when uh, and that was one of the compelling aspects of the of the whole movie. But um, so Penelope had a lot of street cred, you know, in terms of the punk scene. Right, you right. Know. Uh, was this her first this, feature after the documentary? No, no. She had done. Um, she had done actually two or three more films, narrative films, okay, um, okay. before Dudes. But she'd done them for Roger Corman. Um, <laughs> well, among, um, and one of them um, was called The Boys Next Door, which starred Charlie Sheen. And... Uh, a young Charlie guy, Sheen. Yeah, a very young Charlie Sheen. And, that, you know, at that point, Emilio Estevez, um, his brother, had all the street cred or at all that was an est- sort of an established star because especially in the punk world because he had been in um, Repo Man in Repo Man what well, year was that? well this was Repo Man and Dudes came out basically the same year okay. or they were being filmed almost simultaneously so this was 85 wait 80 was it listed 80, Dudes 80, 80, 86 actually yeah 86, 87 right yeah Dudes was actually um, shot mostly during '86, as I recall now, and but it didn't get much of a release until '87, and okay. even then okay. it was barely. And what's interesting too is that D- uh, uh, Dudes has never come out on DVD, and we're actually in the process of tracking it down right now <laughs> and see if we can get it released on DVD. But what makes everything so difficult? is that there's been a chain of bankruptcies <laughs> declared by uh, the whatever entity that that um, uh, acquired the rights or acquired the, the actual fin- finished film. Because they... Dudes was made by the Vista organization and they made three or four films and then they were bought by someone and then that company folded and then they were bought and gobbled up by another corporate entity and so on and so on and so on. And so it becomes very difficult to actually follow the, the chain of title. Right. For, uh, and, and, you know, and what's fascinating is, is that this is relatively recent history. I mean, you know, this is 19, you know, this was a film that was released in 1987. Right. And yet, there, there's serious doubt as to who owns it. <laughs> I can imagine, you know, which I mean, is, I mean, you know, go figure that. That shows you in in one level how fast these corporations, you know, buy buy production libraries, yeah, yeah, just and, come and go, and they Boom. come and go, and the rights to things are get uh, gets very confused, right? Now, I think I remember. Um, well, we saw the film. On your, your writing class, because mm. uh, one of your students was able to get a copy of it, or you had a copy of it. No, I had a copy of it. Okay, yeah. so you yeah. basically, yes. Yeah, basically what happened is, I, fortunately, I'm glad I did, I, I purchased um, uh, a laser disc of it when it came oh, out okay. on laser disc. <laughs> so it was this big chrome platter, you know. <laughs> um, and when I moved up here, uh, 
actually a, uh, a friend of mine um, who was coincidentally the engineer on on two of the records that I put out on my record label back in the 80s. What was um, the name of your record label again? Uh, Blue Yonder Sounds. And How uh, long of it did it last, your record well, label? Well, it, it lasted about three years. <laughs> you know, a couple cool. of years, three years, something like that. You know, I mean, you can... <laughs> um, but Steve Sharp, uh, who engineered the album by the Fibonacci's, which was the first release, and then the second one by a band called Slack, who were from Portland, Oregon. Well, Steve was originally from Portland, Oregon, and then he moved back to Portland, Oregon. When I moved up here, <laughs> I went to go see my friend Stan Ridgway, who mm-hmm. was performing uh, at Mississippi Studios. Uh, and with this, this is like in July. You know, we moved here in June of 2007, and then in July, um, uh, Stan came through town, and I went to go see him, and while I was waiting in the beer line at Mississippi, um, I hear, hey, Randy. And I, and I look over, and I did not recognize him, but it was Steve Sharp. And he now shaves his head, whereas back then he had big, poofy 80s hair. Right. <laughs> and, and so and he, Steve Sharp, and I said, oh, my God, Steve, what are you doing here? And so anyway, long story short, Steve has a media duplication company and a recording studio and everything here in town so he said uh, wow great oh here thank you it's a beautiful thing thank you or whip thank you whip (laughs) right on anything else for you guys we're 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 pretty good for now come back and see us when we need it yes thank you you. yeah don't forget us (laughs) Um, so Steve, I, I said, look, I've got a laser disc. Is there any way of getting something duplicated on, you know? And so basically we got a, we got yeah. some, uh, we're able to get a DVD copy of dudes pulled off of the laser disc, the digital copy there. But the quality isn't that great. You know, it's not like still looking at the original thing. And uh, it was shot by Bob Richardson, who's gone on to become, you know, Martin Scorsese's DP. And he was Oliver Stone's DP for for The Doors and many other films. And he's an Academy Award winner. He shoots beautiful stuff and always has. And so, uh, um, you know, I I don't think (laughs) our little... You know, rip off DVD uh, was you know doing it justice, but right, right. You know, it, it worked for my class. <laughs> <laughs> that was cool. Mm-hmm. We'll take a little break while we eat. Sure. We'll come back. Let's see here. All right. Well, All right. let's talk about your the production of dudes. Yeah. So, boom! You realize it's happening, right? Well, what happened was that I I I, I wrote my my first draft. Which was really long. It was like 140 pages long or something like that. Wow. You know, and generally a screenplay should be coming in at tops, you know, 120 pages. Right. And even a little less than is, is better. But mine came in, it was, it was this epic, yeah. epic punk rock western. Crazy. <laughs> I shoot for about 50 pages. No. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And well, I say add action scene here. Uh, no. Right. right. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> You know, uh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, but in the case of dudes, then uh, they got a director involved. You know, um, I guess I got notes from Miguel Tejada Flores and Hank Palmieri and producer Herb Jaffe at that 
at that stage, um, in which I then, you know, we all knew we had to cut it down, so I worked on really hard and just really condensing it and getting rid of any anything that was fat. And then Penelope Spheris came aboard, and they were talking. It was the the script was making the rounds at the studios as well. They were trying to get a studio maybe further on board. Because so they were already in the midst of producing it, but they wanted a little bit more backing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That, you know what happens sometimes is that an independent company uh, will say, "Okay, we've got this. Maybe we can get somebody to, you know, come on board more." And uh, I'll adjust. No, no. I just I moved it closer. You're good. To throw uh, to throw some more money at us or something. Um, and I was told, you know, it. it Got out to Columbia. Columbia was kind of interested in it. And actually, Ridley Scott, I was told Ridley Scott had read it and was very interested uh, or, or somewhat interested in it. Um, obviously, not enough to go to get behind it and make it, but because, uh, you know, ultimately it was interesting. He goes and makes Thelma and Louise. Not that oh, too, you know, right, too much right, later, right, but right. there were, you know, there's some, yeah, you know, kind true. of a little bit of similarities to it. Um, but anyhow, uh, they started taking meetings with potential directors for it and uh, to quote Miguel Penelope came in and met with them and uh, he said she impressed the shit out of us (laughs) Uh, and Penelope told me later too that she went in there and she said look there are only two people on the planet who can direct this me and Alex Cox and Alex Cox was already making uh, Repo Man at that stage so um, (laughs) she said it's got to be me so I met her and she gave me some notes and then I did some refining but the great thing about Penelope was that she just she really loved the script I mean she really didn't want to change much at all not not really any rare yeah it's pretty rare it's pretty rare, and and quite and quite frankly, I mean, uh, Penelope was just, um, you know, she was just really wonderful. Uh, she was so welcoming and encouraged me to be on the set as much as possible. Um, she invited me at every stage of the process to be involved. For example, uh, once she came aboard and they started having casting sessions, she invited me to a casting session to come in. Now, uh, did you have? There was three sort of main characters, well, sort of, the three guys mm-hmm. and three dudes, but did you, when you were writing, have actors in mind no, when you were writing? Okay. not really. I, the only guy that I had in mind was the villain, and that was Lee Ving, played by Lee Ving. Um, the villain, was his name was Missoula, it was a nickname. And it was played by Leaving, but I wrote it with Leaving in mind because he was the lead singer of Fear, one of the bands that was featured in the decline of Western civilization. But I had seen Fear a couple of times, and I thought he was very, um, uh, very menacing. And he was a real kind of, there was a redneck uh, cracker kind of quality to this guy <laughs> that was behind all the um, the the uh, intimidating intimidation. There was a real biker kind of Lee, Lee was very you know really provocative presence. So I had it really with him in mind. Um, but the other three guys, um, Biscuit and uh, you know Grant and Milo, um, I didn't have anyone in particular okay. in mind. So, so when you saw that when you're going through the casting. Session, yeah. then you're. Well, I had, I, I, I mean, I had, 
mine a character, right? You know what I wanted, and and it was interesting because we on that particular day that I was allowed to sit in, or she invited me to sit in. Um, we saw Reed for the part. We saw Tim Robbins, uh, Kyle McLaughlin, and Kiefer Sutherland, and Michael DeBar, who was. Uh, you know, sort of a 70s glam rocker, uh, <laughs> you know, into that, um, who wasn't quite, who wasn't right. And all those guys gave interesting readings, um, but the one I was most impressed with was uh, Kiefer. Right. Uh, but Penelope didn't go for him as much because she felt uh, he didn't have a sense of humor. And that was interesting to me because uh, I never felt that Grant had a sense of humor or should have had a sense of humor. It was the, 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 the movie's comedic quality came out of, out of situations where you have these punkers, you know, from yeah. the city, you know, floundering out in the Wild West, you know, the modern West. And that's, that to me was a funny situation. And if there was any humor in the it, it, it uh, expressed by either of the characters, it was out of biscuit. It was this big slobbery, yeah. uh, kind of a lovable, but you know, um, uh, a lummox, you know. Right. And uh, so, um, but we disagreed on that, and she she just didn't feel it was right. But ultimately, you know, it was played by John Cryer. They cast John Cryer because he was coming off of the um, the John Hughes movies. Pretty in uh, Pink was pretty, it? Uh, no, yeah, Pretty in Pink. Yeah, I think it was Pretty in Pink. He was Ducky. Yeah, Ducky. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Exactly. You know. So. And um, I don't think did, Kiefer hadn't made Stand by Me yet, had he? No, he had not. Okay, so no not. one really so kind of he was he was a known quantity. Yeah, you know uh, they knew about him because of his you know certainly the the, Dad, the, the, yeah. the his father, but. Um, but they didn't. Uh, he hadn't quite proven. He had bit parts, I think. Yeah. You know, prior to that, um, and uh, it was shortly after that that he started, you know, taking off. But yeah, because it was like you know, Stand by Me, then oh, Lost Boys, and, yeah, and that just kind of cemented of that sort of very. You know, he was a good heavy. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was good, and you know, he had he had suitable angst, and he physically he was um, menacing. He could be right. menacing, and that's what I wanted with you know with with Grant. Somebody could go head to head with leaving, you know, in in a way, and then you know you would have the Lummox of Biscuit, who was based on a. I took his name from a lead singer of a band called the Big Boys, who were uh, skate punks from Austin, Texas, and his Randy Biscuit Turner was their lead singer, <laughs> and he was awesome. That's awesome. I only saw them once, but um, their records hold up really, really well. They were great. And then, um, unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago, I think. But um, the big boys were were rocking. And then, ultimately, then she also cast Flea from right. the Chili Peppers as um, Milo, the Ill, ill-fated Milo, um, which was interesting because, uh, on one level, um, because uh, Flea had filled in as bass player for temporary bass fl- player for Fear. Oh, okay. Um, so, in a sense, backing up Lee Ving, and I thought it was always funny that you know, here was this, you know the in the movie context, yeah. uh, the the lead singer was killing his bass player. <laughs> you know, now, was real quick, because so, I don't think we're going to lose anything here yeah. by just giving the premise of the movie, right? It's like no. I mean, so it's a bit, basically, in a nutshell, it's about three New York punk rockers who 
get fed up with all the urban blight and living in the city and decide to uh, uh, drive cross country to California. Yeah. Because they want to go, they want to meet the Go Go's or something. It's, it's they, just, the they want to get out of town. Yeah. yeah. They want to get away cruising. from New Jersey yeah. and they want to get away or, you know, Queens, whatever. And what happens then is they're traveling across the country, uh, they're camping out in Arizona, and then they get uh, attacked by this group of rednecks who are, who are out um, uh, killing illegal aliens or whatever they, for kicks. Yeah. And so they find these guys and... Wrong place, uh, wrong time. Wrong place, wrong time. And uh, so one of them gets killed, and the other two, the surviving two, Grant and Biscuit, um, vow to avenge their buddy and go on the trail of these killers um, when no one else will. Right, you know? right. And so it's, a, it's an epic Western. You know? <laughs> and so they, tra- they track Punks the killers. Punks in a Western. Yeah, there they track them from Arizona, and it ends up, uh, at least on the script, it ends up in the mountains of Montana. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it was, uh, they were crossing all the way. And so I traveled all around those areas. I wanted to you know, actually make it really authentic to make sure they're going to real right, places right. and all of that. But they meet characters along the way that come and go, and uh, uh, Catherine Mary Stewart plays a um, a, ranch? Young, a, a young woman who has a tow, drives a tow truck, right? Okay, uh, and she comes out to their aid a few times, and then she actually gives them a few tips on surviving and gives them some guns. And, <laughs> and I wrote the I wrote the the role for a much older woman. I wanted to see that it was a. Uh, you know, it was Grant getting involved with uh, with an older woman, um, <laughs> so it would be it would have been like you know Kiefer Sutherland and Barbara Hershey ah. at the time. Okay, but um, you know Hollywood being what it is, uh, they ended up casting Catherine Mary Stewart, who was in I think the last Starfighter yeah, or something, something like of that. that. You know, and who's actually quite lovely and. Uh, she ended up being playing the role of Jesse, and uh, uh, you know, filling that role pretty well. Yeah, no, so she did a good was, job. Yeah, yeah, she broke her arm during the production of it. Actually, I went out to the set uh, when they were filming outside of uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. And by the way, another great thing about Penelope, she asked me a lot. She said, "Where where should this take place? Or do you have any ideas where this location <laughs> is and this and that?" And I directed her to some of the places that I had found, right. um, specifically in, in Arizona, in and around the Verde Valley, which is up, um, um, you know, just north of Phoenix, about um, about 100 miles or so. It's in between Phoenix and Flagstaff. It's very close to Sedona. So there's some great old ghost towns and interesting places out there. And uh, so... I went out there to the set. She welcomed me to come out. And so I was there for a few days while they were shooting on location. And the day, the first day I got there and finally got to the set, there was a scene um, where they were riding uh, horses through this beautiful, beautiful setting uh, right, right on the edge of Flagstaff. And uh, she fell off a horse, I think, and uh, it's just like I'd been there like five uh, minutes, and she fell off this horse. The horse stopped abruptly, and she went like ass over, yeah, yeah, saddle pommel, and uh, broke her arm. Um, well, at least it was just an arm. Yeah, but uh, she was quite the trooper. She she toughed it out. She got that thing put in a cast, and then they covered it up with a long sleeve. Um, 
Oh, so you know, some of the shoots, she was just hiding she, it. Yeah, okay. she was hiding it, and she got back on the horse and did some more riding and all sorts of stuff. So she was she impressed me quite a bit. Crazy. Yeah, you know, movies. Seriously. The show must go on, you know. So you got this. So the whole movie, it's you know, you're like your first movie. Yeah. You know, like holy cow, and yeah. then and and I and I wanted to be there every every day. Right. But I couldn't because I got the job on the doors. And I had that to start, early. Yeah, I had to start. Okay, okay, that's perfect. So yeah. how do we? Because I think. Let me double check here. So you. So. So you're doing that. Um, hold on, sorry. I want to just make sure I get this in chronicle. Chronicle. I can't speak. Chronicled. Right. Yes, the chronological order here. <laughs> it's the. It's the. The dead guy speaking. <laughs> or it's just me making fun of my mother for so many years. <laughs> okay, let's see here. Come on. There we go. So it says here, because this is all true, IMDb. <laughs> if it's on IMDb, then it's it got to be, be true. true. Okay, this is good. Okay, so yes. You're working on dudes... So how and where did the Doors project come up during the filming and the production of Dudes? Well, again, Hollywood is a streaky business, so you know there it's it's about, it's all about hype. And in the, anytime you have something going and in, heading into production, that creates uh, a fair amount of momentum. So suddenly everybody's interested in you. They right. want to know what you're doing and what your next project is and all of that. So I had some real heat. Uh, based on that because again the script had kicked around the studios as well so right. there was um, there was some interest uh, there so the Doors project had been languishing for years because they had as I think I had explained before they had um, uh, uh, th- th- there were quarreling parties that were involved okay finally Bill Graham the rock promoter was able to put all the quarreling parties together in one room and get them all on the same page and get them to agree to make this particular movie. It was a huge bit of politics. Okay, that he so all this stuff was going on prior to even showing up. Prior. Okay. So it was finally set and was set up at Columbia Pictures and Columbia was where Ridley Scott had his deal and so that's how I, I think dudes got circulated okay. out there and one thing, you know, so they had read it and they were aware of it. Now, simultaneous with all of this is that my one of my roommates from film school Mike Petzold was dating um, a young executive at at Columbia, this um, development executive named Jude Schneider, and Jude was the executive who inherited the Doors project, <laughs> and so it was her job then to go out and find the appropriate writer for it. So she asked her boyfriend, my old roommate Mike. Do you would know be, anybody? Yeah. <laughs> who would be good for this? And Mike, who was aspiring to be a producer at the point, too, as well, was just saying, well, you know, he knew a lot of writers around, but also, you know, <laughs> he said, ah, you know, Randy. Uh, I was Randy then. And uh, so I got the call, and I knew Jude anyway, just through Mike, yeah. uh, slightly, but not, you know, not real close. Um, so she got me out to come out and talk about it with her and then she said I want to I want to put you together then with the producer on it okay and the producer was a guy named Sasha Harari who was an Israeli computer magnet who made a lot of money in in uh, software 
um, way back when. And he had bought his way onto the project. He had never produced anything before, but he had bought a strategic piece of the pie. He bought the sync rights to the Doors music, which means ah, that yeah, yeah. no one could make a movie with Doors using Doors music without paying right. the Piper, who right. was Sasha. Hold on for one second. Yeah. Let me yeah, see yeah, let's close that door. <laughs> close the door and the doors. Yeah, it's cold though, man. Yeah, good breeze. All right, yeah. so so very, which is yeah, you got to think like the producers who bought the rights to Harry Potter were like, oh, just, did that just open up? <laughs> yes, it did. This is like the it was like a ghost. That's pretty funny. I don't want to lock it. No, you can't do that, but you know. It's funny. All right, we got a ghost. Yeah. So I'm sorry. It's uh, Jim Morrison coming. <laughs> um, so uh, Jude facilitated a meeting for me to meet the producer. Uh, was Sasha. it one producer? Just Sasha. Yeah, just okay. Sasha. He was he was apparently the lead producer at that point. And, well, there you go. Uh, uh, so I met with him. We had lunch, and. Did he speak English pretty well? No. He actually had a very <laughs> thick Israeli accent, yeah. and he tended to mumble um, uh, a bit. And So it's kind of hard to tell if you're getting a good response. Oh. You must have been like, oh, I don't know about this. Oh, I thought, I, I told you, I thought it was over after 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> I mean, you know, I thought it was just going to be a very long lunch because I felt like I was shooting blanks. Yeah. I, I was not saying anything that made any sense to him at all. Well, let me, let me back up on that. Real quick, so you know you're going into this meeting. Mm-hmm. You know what the project is about. You said mm-hmm. this is the doors. So how much preparation do you do before you go into the meeting in terms of like reading up about the doors? And are, do you have something preset in your mind about this is how I would tackle the the story? Or well, it, it's helpful, yeah, because they when, when you're going through an interview process uh, with producers it's essentially it's an audition piece mm-hmm. um, now granted they've they usually have read something that you have written prior to that uh, but they're also listening to agents and uh, and studio executives and and listening to their recommendations on who they should meet and all that but when it really comes down to it it's about chemistry and it's about it's about the your vision you know um, so granted at that time Unlike today, where there is a, you know, there's a dozen biographies out on Jim Morrison. Yeah. Uh, now, um, at that time, there were no biographies, except <laughs> for No One Here Gets Out Alive, which was written by Danny Sugarman and Jerry Hopkins, which I read, but I was not impressed with it um, for uh, a variety of reasons. It, but it struck me as being very sensationalized, and uh, it wasn't footnoted. That's always if if a book isn't footnoted, that's nonfiction. Um, you know, I find it very difficult to believe. Right, right. Uh, you know, some of the sources they say that they get they they get their material from. Anyhow, I had read that. I was a Doors fan. I wasn't a Doors fanatic. I had a couple of their albums. I didn't have the, the complete catalog. Yeah, yeah. And but I, I had gone to UCLA film school, which Morrison and Raymond Zarek, the keyboardist, had had attended and we had actually shared a couple of the same instructors um 
they were they had attended you know in um, I think 64 65 okay and I was there and started in 79 and 80 80 and out in 82 and so what happened um, though is that I, I caught a couple of these professors at the very end of their tenure after many years there and that one was Ed Brokaw and the other was Lou Stuman and they both had had Morrison and uh, and Ray Manzarek as students and uh, he left the door wide open there <laughs> <laughs> and uh, See if he's bringing so, something down yeah. through it, though. So uh, that brought a little credibility for me because I, you know, it's always about insider information and somebody. Oh, he must be really in touch with ah. you know, because you know, he's come up through the. So you did all the this UCLA film school mystique. Okay, so did you do all this prep work before? Like, not, not really, because there wasn't a whole lot to do other than listen to their music, read the book. Um, you know, How many maybe, days did you have to prepare? Did you do like one day, like he's going to meet with him tomorrow? Yeah, so it, it was pretty okay. quick. It came up, I think, in, within a couple of days because they were ready to go. They had to get moving. You know, they were, they'd been, this project had been festering for years. And so now that they finally had the green light to do it, the people were very, very eager to get moving. So I went and met with Sasha on this, this restaurant up on, uh, on the Sunset Strip there in, in Hollywood, uh, West Hollywood. And sat down and we started chatting and I just felt right away this is not working it's not going anywhere and I'm, I'm, did you feel like you were doing most of the talking and he was just kind of looking yeah. and mumbling yeah was like <laughs> yeah basically let me know. see if I close this okay. Hold on. sure He's just cooking out there. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> See, on the chefs, he's just yeah. Cooking. Well, he's cooking out there. We're freezing in here. <laughs> he's like, yeah, no problem. No. Close it. <laughs> anyway, okay. so you're you're just going, oh great. So how yeah. long was the meeting? Like twenty well, minutes? Well, it was about to be. I thought it was going to be over real fast. <laughs> it was the quickest lunch ever because I thought I was boring them, and we just couldn't find seem to be finding any any common ground. And granted, again, too, I at this time had had uh, directed. You know, I've been working with Henry Rollins, Black Flag, and right. the Minutemen. And so I was kind of very steeped in the punk culture in L.A. at that time, which didn't seem to matter to him. So uh, then I said something that was, I remember him cocking his head. Hmm. And I felt that I, I made some sort of impression. And that was, I drew the comparison uh, between Jim Morrison and Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> And the movie Lawrence of Arabia, in which uh, I said that both of these guys were very charismatic, uh, very well-educated, well-read young men who were literally swept up by the events and the wave of history. And they surfed it as best they could, but what was happening is that there was a discrepancy that arose between their public persona and their private ones. And it got to the point of where that discrepancy pulled them so far apart that something had to snap, and it did, and it broke them. I would have got my and, attention. And yeah. that did. He cocked his head, and then what I thought was going to be a 20-minute conversation ended up being two hours. We were there for a couple of hours. Ah, that was a turning on. point. That yeah, was the turning you, point. You got him that hook. Got him with that hook. And so who would have thunk? But uh, that's, the way it, that's the way it worked. And so he became very curious then about 
you know, what I thought. And because he was, Sasha was very uh, intrigued with the notion that Jim was indeed a poet. He was, he was an intellectual. Yeah. And arguably he was. Um, so he wanted to see that aspect really exploited and dramatized uh, as much as possible. And so when I brought that up, I mean, that to him, you know, there was, there was a corollary between him and Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence, who was, you know, was a, a, a writer and basically had the, the poet, or the soul of a poet himself. Um, but Lawrence was uh, homosexual and Lawrence also started believing his own press at a certain right, point. At right. least that was the take that the movie had. And it became very, very difficult for him to measure up to the sort of the public or the heroic image that, that had been perpetuated then by the media of the day. So it's very true with, with Morrison. Morrison wasn't a homosexual. He was probably bisexual. Yeah. Um, but uh, he had some secrets and some issues that, you know, um, caused him to, uh, to snap, you know, to break as well. You know, so, and also then the other thing that I, I think scored some points was that I said, and this was one of the reasons why I really wanted to do the project, uh, was I had felt there had never been a rock and roll epic. Yeah, I can see know, that. Film. Yeah. You know, up until that point, we'd seen the Buddy Holly story and the Richie Valens story right. Right. and things like that. Coal Miner's Daughter, which was really great, but it was different types of, of music and different. We hadn't seen a really serious treatment of rock and roll in rock and roll, epic rock and roll. Yeah, know? and at a crucial right. time. Like you said, right. it's different. Like the Buddy Holly, Richie Valens right. story is, is just different. But. And so I felt that the doors really had that potential. Because the because of the subject matter of what they uh, they sang about and what they had, their performances and the way they orchestrated things and the way their albums were produced and all of that and yeah. you know and Morrison's vision and Manzarek's vision and all of that they collectively they they had scope it was it wasn't bubblegum rock yeah it wasn't Paul Revere and the Raiders or you know right. it really was about <laughs> it was about the big questions you know yeah and so that's where I thought dramatically cinematically it had great potential and that's why I wanted to do it did you feel on yourself once you cried, you broke through that like 20 minute mark and you re- realized that now you were gelling having this conversation that were other things kind of coming in your mind like it's just you start just riding the wave yourself yeah you start conversation. you start talking out of your ass pretty yeah. fast <laughs> <laughs> you know it's um, yeah yeah you do you get you're like you know, yeah and it could be like this dolphin no no yeah. not a dolphin it'd be a giraffe yeah. you know <laughs> a bit a bit yeah yeah it, it, it gets like that you know it's 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 pretty funny and you gotta be careful too of like not not promising more than you can deliver you know <laughs> but you can't help but get excited and, and they and they feel that you know they it Producers and ex- executives and stuff—they—they they want to be swept up with the with your enthusiasm. They want to see your vision as well, right? And they want to feel it. So it's uh, it's exciting for them when you get excited and you sell them on it, you know. And then they're going to get on board because they usually have to turn around and then either have to sell you to their boss or to the studio or to, to some sort of money entity that they and make them feel confident and good enough that they are making the right decision in yeah. hiring you, and that you and only you have have the vision to pull this off. 
you know. Right. So when I went off to this meeting, I, I remember talking to my, my agent at the time, Rick Jaffa, who I mentioned in our last session, you know, wrote, uh, has written with his wife, uh, The Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Yes. You know, he left yes. Morris to go become a writer. But Rick was still my agent at that time. And uh, he called me before I had this lunch, or I called him at, to tell him that I had this meeting that Jude had set up with Sasha. And and he said, listen, you know, he said, I don't mean to dash your hopes, you know, rain on your parade, but, you know, they're talking to some really heavy hitters. It's a very, very slim chance you're going to get that gig. Oh, okay. And I said, I okay. don't care. I'm going to, I got to go for it. I want to try. Right. Um, to try for it. And uh, so he was very pleasantly surprised when, when uh, uh, I got the gig. But however, I didn't know I really had it. Now, see, Sasha was, was a very good poker player. And mm-hmm. so, so we, that 20 minute lunch expanded into a two hour lunch and we left. And then I heard from Jude, I believe, later on that he said, All right, he wants you to come and meet the doors. Now, the surviving doors. And I said, Great. You know, if nothing else, <laughs> nothing it's, else. Already, yeah, it's cool. already been worth it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, we met, and I can't remember if it was at Columbia Studios or if it was at some other location there. Um, but we had a preliminary meeting where I met them. I can't remember if Jude was present in that meeting or not. But what was interesting was that Manzarek was there, and Manzarek was impressed with with the stuff that I had done uh, music video-wise, and and also with my record label. And here's the here's where it got. Uh, no, no, my record label hadn't, hadn't been established yet, but here, here's where it got incestuous, though, which was that Manzarek um, was producing X at the time. So oh. X, X was, of course, right. you know, the punk rock band of, of LA. In, in L.A. Yeah. So Manzarek was producing them. So he was very keyed into what their, their you know, vibe and aesthetic was. Um, then he was further impressed by the fact that I had gone through, I was through UCLA and we had had some of the same, same instructors. So we compared notes on yeah. that a lot. And then um, Ray was also very interested in a band called the Fibonacci's who were, um, uh, he was interested in producing them. And they were the band that ultimately would be my debut band on my record label. <laughs> you know, so I got it kind of really. And then, then Densmore, the drummer, John Densmore to the Doors, found out that I had written Dudes, and he knew about Dudes already. Uh, that it was, I don't know, in the in the works somewhere. And John was acting a lot at that point, and he immediately said, "Do you think you can get a me a part in the movie?" <laughs> <laughs> you must so, be like this, like oh, I just what I, is going so on here? I, I said, well, sure. And then I had also the other thing that brought uh, the Manzarek like was that I had been working with Black Flag and Henry Rollins, and I had always um, argued that you know the Doors were much more punk rock than they were flower power psychedelic oh, yeah. generation kind of stuff, and that Henry was you know sort of the spiritual inheritor of of the Morrison legacy you know by doing all his spoken word stuff and 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 I I felt Henry had potentially had some acting chops and there was even some discussion about Henry even possibly being the guy to play Jim just very very briefly 
But uh, Henry and I were palling around a lot at that time, and so I actually uh, brought Henry over and to meet uh, Manzarek and uh, Paul Rothschild and Bruce Botnick, who engineered all the Doors albums, and Rothschild who produced them all. But some recording session was going on that they, and so they, he thought that was really cool. I, I scored a lot of points on that day because Henry was really impressed to meet Manzarek and Rothschild and uh, uh, Manzarek was really impressed to meet Henry and it further just kind of I think cemented my street cred in terms that I, w- I was the right guy for to do this project right right you know? so, so that's how in session and then I got uh, I got Dinsmore an audition for uh, Dudes and he, Penelope cast him um, so <laughs> he's in Dudes um, he plays a, 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 a sheriff in a in a that's right a Montana town, that's and right. uh, Levine <laughs> blows him away at uh, you know at the very end there. And uh, uh, but it was it was <laughs> it was really funny, man. <laughs> it was quite a time. That was a high high water mark in my my career. in so 1986. Oh my so, God! So you had your dudes is in production. You basically at what point did you know it was official that you're on well, doors? Well, I didn't. So we had that. Yeah, we, we had, had all these meetings. meetings. We were having all these meetings, and I kept wondering, well, where, you know? And we had a lot of talk, a lot of discussion. You're like, nobody where's my was, paycheck? Well, nobody was saying anything. Yeah. So then we met again at a meeting. Uh, we had a meeting at 20th Century Fox, and the reason why we were there um, was because we were in the in the office of a screenwriter named Tom Rickman. Tom Rickman is a wonderful, wonderful guy and a wonderful screenwriter. And he had written Coal Miner's Daughter, Michael Apt had directed. Um, they had originally gone to Tom to see if he wanted to write The Doors movie, of which he declined. He just, um, he just didn't want to get into that, uh, that rat's nest, I guess, or whatever it was, hornet's nest. But he agreed to be aboard as a, to mentor anyone who did step in to do it so in other words Tom was there for backup in case you know whoever stepped into it failed so he wanted to meet me then and so we all convened at his office in 20th Century Fox and so so there was Tom there was the surviving doors myself Sasha and I remember they had ordered out lunch and everybody was uh, they brought in these sandwiches and so we were all sitting around eating sandwiches and there was a lot of banter going back and forth and discussion and they kept asking me certain things about the movie or, or how you know what how I saw certain things and what was important and what wasn't and I kept trying to like figure out am I on this job what what you know finally <laughs> I, I just finally I just looked at Sasha and I said look do I have the job and I remember him just kind of grinning at me. He said, yeah, you have the job. That, that was your <laughs> confirmation. That was my confirmation. I, was like, I just exactly any paper, nothing. Enough. Like my agent, like, my man, nothing. Oh, my God. And that's, so, that's when, at that moment, then it was just like I freaking couldn't believe it, man. Because then it was like I, I had run the gauntlet. I had beat the odds. Um, I was, you know, having lunch with legends and I was on a studio lot and it was the dream it was the dream you know it was just an amazing feeling when you got that moment where he gave you the smile and the nod Uh internally were you just how quickly were you able to focus back onto the task at hand which is like 
well, well here's the vision of the movie because inside you must be like oh holy shit this oh, is actually nice. happening no, like this is actually happening yeah i mean you're you're i'm just doing somersaults inside yeah you know? yeah um but try to be cool yeah <laughs> be cool oh yeah cool man yeah okay yeah i'm cool i'm i'm into it <laughs> uh, hey please keep going or is this it well, it goes outside, but that door keeps flying it, open. No more lock. Yeah. There's no more inside though. Right? No, no. no. So. Yeah, this is it. Um, so yeah, it was just like, uh, but I remember getting out of there and just like, oh my God, who do I call first? I mean, it was like so. Well, who did and, you call? I think I called my agent. I called Rick and and Carol Yumpkis, and I said I got the job, and they just like, are you? Kidding me? Are you sure? Are you sure? And they said they told me they only got the job, and sure enough, it was you know consummated shortly after that. Um, I called Jude to thank her for really, yeah, you know, yeah. um, um, going to bat for me because she she really also uh, it wasn't just all me. She had influence with the studio, of course, and because she was still the executive in charge of the, of the project, so uh, she went to bat for me as well. And uh, geez, I think I called uh, I don't know. I called my parents, and uh, I you know it's all blur a blur at this point. But it was just. I just couldn't. This is have old. Been. This is still a payphone style. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no yeah, cell no, phones. No, 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 I, I waited until I got home. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, this was this was '86. But this was the drag, though, is that I got the gig, and then dudes was in production, was going into production. So you're like, I want to be there, I and I can't. Be there on the set, but I got it. I had to start going to work. Oh, on the success. doors, like right away. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, they were shooting dudes in L.A., in the L.A. locations, before they went off to Arizona. Okay. So I was able to to uh, go down the set in L.A. a couple of times, and um, I was uh, dating this girl who worked for SST Records at the time. Nice. And was she punk rock? Yeah, yeah. She was a little skate punk. Nice. And uh, <laughs> uh, uh, she was tough, man. Kara Nix. <laughs> And uh, she was a photographer as well, and a really, actually, a very good writer. Um, uh, and anyway, I took her uh, to the set um, of dudes, and we were—I remember being down there, and then, then Flea started started trying to pick up on her. I was going to yeah, ask yeah, you, yeah. like, <laughs> brought her down there. I'm assuming that you she you lost her to one of the oh, rock stars, oh, one of the punk, punk yeah, stars. Flea was, you know, the pep, the. <laughs> The Chili Peppers were just starting to break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they, they were, were still certain, kind of they, underground. They, they were they were still very underground. They were you know they were the opening band for more established bands in L.A. at the yeah. time. Um, but uh, you know, Flea was a known commodity because of his uh, his playing with uh, a fear. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, for even though it was a short stint, and then and he was just a well-known guy in that whole scene. So um, yeah, but. <laughs> Flea was after Kara that that that, that day. <laughs> uh, I love was, it. That was pretty funny, but yeah. So then, um, then Sasha told me, he said basically, take a couple of weeks to research, and then go and write the script. And I thought, okay. Um, <laughs> so where do you start? Well, I started by interviewing, Teachers? you know, the door, the the, the doors, doors okay. um, themselves. Uh, you know, you go right straight to the horse's mouth in this particular case, and that was a. You know, Ray, Robbie, and John. Um, and I interviewed them collectively, and then I interviewed them individually. 
as well because you know it's a little bit of corroborative yeah, you yeah. know kind of, of witnesses and and that that I found it was sometimes they would be more frank if they were if the others weren't around especially Densmore would really open up yeah. if the other two weren't around so it became very apparent to me oh and then Rothschild was also um a gem of an interview um and he was really my my good we're um yeah we're doing really really well i guess you can take that empty yeah i'm not gonna suck any more out of that but, you know um i can use another one i think yeah okay yeah i'm st- i'm it's just nice been talking to night i know Thank yeah you. yeah uh yeah so so ray um let's see um densmore oh rothschild um it was, yeah, my first or second session with him, it was like, wow. Um, I felt like I was still being auditioned to a certain degree. Yeah. Because a lot of these guys now, now even though I was on board and sanctioned, yeah. and I had the blessing, now it was still I sort of had to prove myself. And in a, in a sense, I mean, these were the guys who were the guardians of the, the faith. You know, right. Um, keepers of the faith. And so, therefore, I had to further prove myself in a sense. So... That's where I started doing a lot more research and really asking the right questions, really thinking ahead of time before I would speak. I wasn't just trying to, you know, talk out of my. What was Jim really like? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, well, can you tell me some good drug stories? You exactly. Know, and stuff like that. And but but really trying to get to the meat of the matter. But it became very apparent to me uh, after my first round of interviews that. The public persona of Jim Morrison was one thing. The private one was an entirely different thing. Right. So that there was, in other words, there was a whole lot of stuff that had never been discussed, never been talked about, never been delved into whatsoever. And that it was not, this was not a particular case of where I was going to be able to take a couple of weeks to research and then go and write the movie. Because the deeper, the more and more I got into it, the deeper and deeper I felt it was and it was going to take some real work and some heavy lifting and Rothschild Rothschild you know told me at one point he said look you're going to you know the the key to it is is finding you know what what made Jim so angry what was the core what was the 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 source of his angst and then you ask him, where do I go to find that? <laughs> well, he offered it up uh, okay. to me. Um, so, um, and he said that, uh, he said Jim came to him a couple of times with a problem and asked Paul's advice about what to do about it. And um, the... Uh, it would. It, it was related to a particular function, <laughs> and um, and Paul said, you know, look into this because he said I think this might provide some, you know, answers to Jim's angst. So let's you back know. up real quick. For me, it's like we have Ray, the keyboardist. Yes. We have Paul is Ray. Ray Manzarek is the keyboardist. Right. Robbie Krieger is the guitarist. Right. John Dinsmore is the drummer. Right. And then Paul Paul Rothschild produced all of the Doors albums except L.A. Woman. Okay. Okay. So that's where 
he 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 was done as really in a, in one sense sort of was Jim um, um, after the soft parade he couldn't he didn't he he heard some of the demo tapes for uh, or not even they weren't even demo tapes uh, he he attended a couple of band rehearsals where they had the new material mm-hmm. they were working on and. He heard Riders on the Storm, which he said it sounded like cocktail music to him. It was boring. He didn't... Um, I see. He didn't like it. Thank you. So that's what was interesting um, hmm. uh, there. Um, so, But Rothschild was the elder statesman, in a sense, of the band. Um, Ra- Paul was a few years older than uh, even Manzarek. And Manzarek was definitely the elder statesman of the band. You know, Robbie and and John were like 21, 22. Yeah, yeah. And Ray was 27, 28 years old when the doors really kicked in. Ray was born in 1939. <laughs> Ray had been in the Army. Ray was in graduate school for film school when he was at UCLA. He wasn't an undergrad. I know when the film came out, mm-hmm. um, I heard read statements. He was just upset, like, because he felt like the movie sort of... Um, portrayed him as like kind of a whiner you know he's like yeah well ray had a lot of issues about yeah. the movie and not to jump ahead but i yeah, just remember yeah that i mean as a you know outsider the, yeah there, there there were a lot of I, I ray did not get along with oliver from what i understand i can't say that okay you know but i i they did not see eye to eye um and it was interesting too because ray was very tight with danny sugarman um and Danny Sugarman ended up being very tight with Oliver. Um, so you would think there would have been some sort of synchronicity there, but there wasn't, apparently. There was a lot of friction between Oliver and, and Ray. And Ray did not like, you know, how the movie handled a lot of the stuff. And, yeah. so, and so went on record again and again, really just saying, no, bad movie, bad bad portrait, et cetera, et cetera. Oliver, again, Oliver likes to get sensational with stuff mm-hmm. and uh, but he's and he's a man not lacking in opinions yeah and so and nor nor the guts to express them so he's you know he was going to make his own movie one way or another so um, let's we'll know. back up real quick so you you go on this uh, this journey your own journey now <laughs> now you've entered the portal of Jim Morrison's world it, it, it was exactly it was that yeah and I don't know if you um, you, sh- you may check out just last week um, Jimmy Fallon did this Jim Morrison imp- uh, impersonation. Oh, did he? On his really? show. Oh, funny. Uh-huh. But he does this thing where he, he takes famous like musicians that he does imitations uh-huh. of, like uh, Paul. Um, I'm sorry, who's it? Uh, Neil Young. Yeah. But he's <laughs> he had like Jim Morrison in the Doors, like his makeup make believe band. But they were he would just sing these songs, um, but the, the lyrics are just not nonsense. But it was. He was basically reading like um, um, the Reading Rainbow, you know, the you know, Good Night Moon. So it was like all these children's songs, but done. And it is uncanny how much he sounds like, like Jim Moore. Yeah. yeah, and so it's online, and it's you just easily find it on like a quick YouTube search, and yeah. it's just to see him just going like. Reading Rainbow, you know, because like, Indian cupboard, you know, it's like the way he sings it, and like the whole band yeah. is like for his show, but yeah. just, just as a little tongue-in-cheek thing, sure. it's pretty funny. Sure. But anyway, so you go down this journey, yeah, and what you thought was a couple of weeks. How big of a fan was Sasha of the music? 
Or was he just more of a business pragmatic person well, going, I'm going to buy into this and then... That's an interesting question because you know, Sasha would tell me on more than one occasion how he got into this whole thing and which was that he had been um, he'd been in New York. Sasha was married at the time to uh, one of the Efron sisters, Amy Efron, who's oh. uh, a very prolific novelist now, but she's the younger sister of Delia and, and the other <laughs> Efrons. There's a lot of them. Um, but he had been living in New York at the time, and he said that, or prior to all this, he said that he had been out partying all night long or something. <laughs> yeah, it was very, very thing. And he was coming back from some all-night thing and was driving across a particular bridge and the sun was coming up uh, in New York and I think he said the end came up right on, on the time. radio. Yeah. Right on time. Yeah, right on cue. And he said that was just like a salient moment for him. He had never really heard it, I guess. Um, you know, Sasha had been, I think he was in the Israeli army. It was in the Seven Days War in 67 <laughs> or whatever. So, I mean, he was just, this was not a... He wasn't, in other words, he wasn't in L.A. or San Francisco drinking the flower power wine, you know. He was in an entirely different place, much like Oliver Stone was, you know, he was in, Oliver was in, in Southeast Asia. He was in Vietnam and when the doors were really happening stateside. So, anyway, he just said that this was just a huge moment for him. And he just, he got, from that point on, he became obsessed about the band. And he had made all this money in software. And he just went out and bought, literally just bought his way onto uh, into uh, this the strategic piece of um, the producing puzzle of, of the producing puzzle. Exactly. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It really. I mean, it was very interesting. And, it was, and I mean, it was effective because boy, he was he instantly made himself a player. Yeah. Now he had bought it couple of years before you know but um, he'd laid the money down and they did it was it was a smart thing so then so, then, so now you've you're exploring you're you're going wow it almost sounds crazy but you could have like written a book a biography because yeah. all the, all the yeah. legwork that you've done to do the the research you yeah could've. I accumulated I, I, th- I think I have about um, 50 hours of interviews oh, you know on, on tape and you know I mean it's uh, I mean it's it's, it's everyone um, all the doors you know Rothschild um, oh uh, Jack Holzman who ran Electra Records um uh, God, I mean, I mean, there were characters, you know, Babe Hill. I've, Babe Hill was Jim's trusted drinking buddy in the latter part of his career. Uh, nobody knew where Babe Hill was when I got on board. No, and a lot of people didn't want to know. I wanted to know because I wanted to interview him. Yeah, yeah. But everyone was was afraid of Babe because Babe was kind of this biker guy, and he was in pretty tight with some I guess some real heavy friends um, Robbie had did not want to have anything to do with him he's and I mean Rothschilds just said Jesus you know the last time I saw Babe he had a he had a hunting rifle and was shooting it you know off of you know my backyard you know up in the Hollywood Hills or something <laughs> it was just like crazy all these crazy stories about Babe but nobody knew how to get a hold of him and you know Ray and all those guys didn't they didn't know so 
How did you do it? Well, I, um, <laughs> I I wish I could take total credit for it, but um, I couldn't. Um, Tom Rickman had a very resourceful secretary at the time named Francesca, and Francesca did a little bit of sleuthing, which was we had heard that Babe was in the Grips Union was, <laughs> and worked in the, in the film biz, and he was a grip. So she called the Grip union headquarters wherever that number is and yeah and then they said well you got to talk to moose <laughs> so moose was like uh, this guy named moose was the head of the grips at uh uh at mgm so she called up moose and he said oh yeah well babe you know you can find babe at um this bar i forget the name of it now she it's only been 26 years yeah yeah um that was literally across the street from MGM, the old MGM lot in Culver City. And he said he's there every day about four o'clock. So, you know, just buy him some Jack Daniels. And, you know, and like, okay. So Francesca relays this information to me. She said, I think I found him, or at least I know where, where you can find him. So you kind of go solo on these things. I mean, yeah. it's not like you have a team that says, like, you have your own little team that yeah. says, look, I'll find this, set up this interview for you. It's you going, hello. Yep. That's exactly the way it went. Remember, there's no internet. There's no cell phones. You know, it's an entirely different landscape. What an adventure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, she gave me the the name of the bar, the address, and I went down there on a particular day about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Now set up the scene here. You in this bar, did you fit in or were you totally... No, no. This this was a real... This was this was a <laughs> this was a drinking man's bar. So what were you, know. you wearing? <laughs> well, you like, know, uh, I'm certainly not going to dress up for the occasion. Right, right. Um, you know, jeans and a t-shirt, and um, I was probably wearing my black Doc Martin Doc Martins at the time. Um, it was a little horseshoe counter of a bar, really small. Um, gosh, I can't remember the name of it. I, I probably got it somewhere in my notes. Three or four professionals at the bar drinking you know already yeah. at four o'clock on a weekday afternoon and i think i got there first i think okay, I, okay. I was there staking it out and went in and ordered a um ordered a beer and you know honestly boy i haven't really thought about this in a long time it might have been that moose conveyed a message to babe like hey this guy's looking yeah, for you yeah <laughs> and um and i think the message came back something like go tell that guy to go fuck himself or something like that there the was usual or, yeah or or it was like you know meet me at this bar at that at such and such time you know <laughs> those are two different um, responses <laughs> yeah i know i know it, honestly it, it's been that long and i can't remember but uh, let, let me just say that you know for the record i entered the establishment with a certain amount of trepidation. <laughs> okay. And, uh, um, but, uh, sure enough, babe came in and, uh, I took a seat next to him. I said, Hey babe, I'm Randall. And you know, I'm writing this, yeah. the movie. Now hard, doors. how hard was it to say, Hey babe. Hey babe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hadn't really thought of it like that. <laughs> but I guess you well, did. it would have been worse if I had said, "Hey, babe, I'm Randy." Uh, that, 
if, if we were in England, that would have been an, you know, an entirely different subtext. Oh. Um, and, you know, he just, he didn't really want to talk at first. I remember him being yeah. some, taken somewhat aback, so, which leads me to believe now, actually, that he was, I caught him a little off guard. He wasn't sure that I was going to be there or something. Um, so he, uh, but I remember him saying, um, kind of, you know, being standoffish at first, but I didn't back away. I knew this was like, I have to get this. Yeah, like this is my job. Yeah. yeah. And he finally said, well, buy me some whiskey and we'll talk. And so I, we ended up drinking. He drank a lot of whiskey and having a, you know, we talked for probably an hour and a half, two hours there at that bar initially. And then again, like I was talking about before, where there's this kind of like these hurdles, you're the, mm-hmm. these, you know, this gauntlet you have to go through. I cleared it with him. So, therefore, then I was able to go the next level, which was okay. We'll meet again, and yeah. then we'll get into it. Oh, okay, I see where okay. you're. You know, so it was like the outer circle, right? But then we'll get into the more meat of the matter. Now, let me. Ask, so, when you so, got hired on the job, again, as a, a life of a writer, you know, you're paid in as if like a freelancer. You're paid in these chunks. There's not like a regular right. paycheck. It's right. just literally. Yeah. Like, here's a bit of money, and here's another you're, bit of you're, money. You're paid in increments, and usually the, the way it worked at that time, you get paid, you know, half up front, and you'll get paid the half, the second half upon delivery right. of your first draft. And then it there's changes. Us- yeah, the there's, there's rules, a usually right. some leftover for another pass and possibly a polish. Right. You know, but uh, basically you get a very large sum up front. And then you get another large sum after you deliver first draft. What could happen in in between that? You know, it could be a right. you know long time, and it was in my case a long time. Yeah, I was going to think like because you're on this project, you're like, okay, he's asking you to buy him some whiskey. You're like, okay, I have money. <laughs> Whatever. Oh, sure. you know, yeah, what yeah, I'm yeah. saying is like, yeah. they're paying me to do this. I'll buy this whiskey for you. Yeah. So you now make the second you enter that circle and and yeah and the stuff that he was telling you like. Like, for you personally, was it just more like, were you finding moments of like, oh, wow, oh, wow, like just your head spinning in a sense that you were like, like story points or just, just sheer pure human interest? It's more of the latter. I mean, okay. I, I don't recall really just going, holy yeah, freaking yeah. goobers, you know, this, this. <laughs> This is the most amazing stuff I've ever heard. It wasn't anything quite like that. A lot of the, a lot of the stories had already been kicked about, you know, okay. that people were aware of them at least as a rumor, or something. But I don't, I don't remember, you know, having really earth-shattering stuff coming out from Babe. And I actually, I think I might have been a little disappointed in Babe, actually. And then because <laughs> you really, wanted more, something hoping deeper more. that nobody yeah. else had. Yeah. Okay. But basically, Babe, Babe was was just a good guy. But, Babe was unlike Jim and a lot of Jim's old film school crew. Babe was kind of the anti-intellectual. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, Babe kind of kept it real. Ah, I gotcha. For him, you know, and that Babe was probably more loyal than almost any and all of those friends. But Babe wasn't Jim's intellectual uh, uh, on his level. 
he, he would listen and he would tolerate it and kind of stuff like that. But basically, he would watch Jim's back and he would call bullshit on yeah. Jim. And, you know, and Jim knew that Babe was real. He wasn't just sort of somebody who was fawning all over him. And that was pretty much the case, too, with, with the other guys that, were, that they were pretty close in that, in that little knit, uh, close-knit group, which was, included uh, Paul Ferrara, who I never interviewed, and Frank Lisiandro, who I did interview. Um, those were Jim's old friends from film school. Mm-hmm. Um, and those guys were really tight-knit uh, at, uh, you know, for, for, a, for a period of time. Um, and so they did a lot of partying together, a lot of drinking together, and a lot of you know uh, of that stuff. But um, but yeah, you know. It, but what was happening though is that I would interview you know, all these different people, and they not not none of them really got along with one another, and they'd all kind <laughs> of like uh, you know headed to different directions, right. you know. Um, and so what happened is that I just had this. It was amassing all this information though. And none of it jived. Hmm. None of it was sort of coalescing yeah, yeah. into anything. And it was like a classic case of that, you know, the uh, the blind men touching the elephant. And yes. Thinking that, oh, I really have I, the knowledge of what Jim Morrison was all about. But you know, he's right. got his hand on the tusk, but somebody else is holding on to the tail. Right. And all that, and and they, neither, neither one of them really knew. Right. You know? Right. So. Fascinating. It was, yeah, and so it was. It was a little scary then because I had to pull it all together. Like I you, had, like you realize now it's real. Like all the honeymoon's over now. It's just work, right? Now, how many years or how long did it take you to get the first draft to them? Well, I spent all of 1986 working on the one draft. year. Yeah, I spent one year. Research, starting, writing. I got. I, I think I got the job in like February, mm-hmm. March, something like that, and. Yeah, and so then I started researching and then writing, and uh, holy crap, you know, I just got, and I, and what was funny too, I was, I was 27 years old, same age Chimbo was when he died. <laughs> drove a Mustang. I had a Mustang. Jim drove a Mustang. I was living in West Hollywood, which is uh, literally around the corner from UCLA, from where Jim used to crash at uh, Pamela's. Um, Apartment on hmm. uh, on Norton Avenue. I was on lived on Sweetser, and uh, j- just up from Santa Monica Boulevard. And so I was literally around the corner from uh, his his universe, which was basically the corner of uh, the the intersection of Santa Monica and La Cienega. Yeah, because the doors offices were right there. Um, the Alta Cienega Hotel Motel was there. Electra was just down the street. There were Barney's Beanery and a few other locales that are now long gone. But that was really kind of the center of his universe. And so it was, it was a little interesting, you know, <laughs> living, living there at that time and, you know, and writing about it. This was at, when I was first on, on board on it. And then and, um, I, I just, it was it was odd. Yeah, it was really kind of a, a sort of a, a strange thing. But I, I couldn't work at home a lot of times because there was noise in the apartment. I had a roommate at the time, and uh, yeah, and it just it was a lot of it was distracting. So I I moved around a lot, um, 
and I actually came down to the, uh, came home to uh, Carlsbad uh, and wrote a lot of it down there, staying with my parents. Um, just to get away? Well, just to get away, and I got really sick also. I got a, oh. um, I got a, um, it sounds worse than it was, but it, it I had monohepatitis, huh. uh, which just waylaid me. Um, it's actually a more a benign form of hepatitis than you would you know, yeah, yeah. think, but it sounds worse than it, than it really actually was, but it was it, I mean, I was wasted for a long time and I, I literally couldn't get out of bed uh. and here it was, I had the most felt like the, the job of a lifetime and, most important, and I yeah. couldn't I couldn't, you know, so I was laying there in bed and too sick to even sit up straight, but I remember just envisioning in my head it was laying there with this fever or these all oh, these aches or whatever um, I would just go over it again and again in my head like one scene after the next how I would see the movie yeah you know and just formed it from based on all the interviews and stuff and just just envisioned it one thing after another after another after another for as far as I could yeah so you're still working you know still working but literally not <clears throat> right writing yeah which is yeah. fine it's I mean, they, they talk about that in, um, like I said, the other podcast I listened to with uh, Jeff Goldsmith, the like, creative screenwriting magazine, but now he has his own podcast called the uh, Q&A. Uh-huh. And he, a lot of the screenwriters he's talked to, they talk about this this technique that they use, which is they need their nap time. The Coen yeah. brothers talk about that, where they just have a nap, which is that, that weird state of in between when you're about to fall asleep and in, in awake and all of a sudden somehow it just cleanses your your thoughts and like what you're trying to work on comes clear in that weird moment of right before sleep or coming out of yeah. sleep so you were lucky enough to be induced with a this <laughs> a sickness yeah. that you were like constantly like that every waking hour but <laughs> well there's yeah i mean but yeah it, it is interesting there was there's a lot of truth to that um and to that that sort of state between waking and waking and sleep and yeah. consciousness, um, yeah, and sleep. Um, but it was, uh, nevertheless, um, you know, I, I was I I moved around a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I I went up to um, Idlewild, up in the mountains above, um, you know. Um, Palm Springs there uh, and some friends of mine had a no it wasn't friends yes it was friends of friends and I rented a little uh, A-frame cabin for like uh, three weeks or a month and, and rode up there like a real rider yeah yeah Dude, <laughs> lost away in a cabin yeah exactly and then uh, um, then I was down at my parents place and then um, then I got some office space. This is really bizarre, too. There were just all these really weird things that happened. But I, was, I had this office space that I rented for a while in a big barn-like building in uh, West Hollywood. It was, an old, um, it was an old historical building. I think it had been a silent film studio or something like that. But it had been all divided up, subdivided inside. And so there were all these different little uh, cubicles and, and uh, things within it. And somebody... A friend of a friend had office space there, and they, they were going to be gone, and so I could go in there and work. So I was there working late one night, and I had my all my stuff out. I had doors, tapes. I had a little, this is again the day of, of cassettes. Right. So I had a little portable cassette player, and I had all my doors, tapes, and I had a briefcase full of stuff. 
and I had a whole stack of photographs of, that I'd taken on the set of dudes that were in this briefcase and everything. And I was really tired at one point, so I went out and I got a bite to eat over around the corner, like at Hugo's or someplace. And I, and I came back, came upstairs into this into this place, and it was pretty big and dark, you know, and others. And and I had just this little light around the, my little cubby right. where I was working. And I came in and I sat down and I noticed that some of my stuff didn't look oh, no. like the way I had left it. You know, and it was weird. I said, God, I don't remember these you just papers. Said something was off. Yeah, well, yeah. something was off. There were some papers on the floor, or something was something was in disarray. Something wasn't wasn't quite right. Then I heard something in the back. <laughs> but wait, a minute, what the hell is this? So I go back. Now I had been told that there was there's this comedian, Rich um, Hall. Hall, Rich Hall. Rich Hall yeah. himself. Yeah. Had also had space there, and he would occasionally come in late at night and work around. So I thought it might have been him. So I said, oh, let's go and, I'll go and say hello, yeah. maybe. So I go in the back, and here's this guy stooped over and going through a bunch of stuff. And I come in, and I say, hey. <laughs> he, and, he's, and he looks up, and he says, oh, hello. And he has this kind of affected English accent of some sort. It's very, very odd. And he had this retro, like, 50s suit on and a fedora hat. Okay. Literally a fedora hat. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I thought, well, this isn't definitely isn't Rich Hall. Yeah. And so I said, who are you? And um, I said, do you work for, it was a production company that usually was there. Do you work for such and such? And and he said said some weird answer that was, like, neither yes nor no. And I thought... This isn't right. Yeah, yeah. So we chatted a little bit more, and he was like, really just like eyeing me, and like it was very, really, really kind of weird. And he stood up, you know, and I was like, this, this is something this is really not right. Your I insides said, yeah, were like telling yeah, your. Yeah. So I said, look. Um, your spidey senses. Yeah, my spidey <laughs> sense was up, you know, and so I said, look, um, gee, dude, you know, I don't mean to be out of line here but I missing I'm missing some stuff that was on my desk here and he said oh really what was that and I said some tapes some doors tapes and stuff oh I like the doors he said <laughs> and it was like really kind of creepy I like the doors and I was like, oh boy this is okay my spidey sense is really yeah, up yeah, at yeah. this point now and I was thinking geez what do I do and I was thinking I can, I can take them I can take him, but I thought also this guy is just weird enough that he's got like a switchblade or some kind of fucking mm-hmm. weird thing in there. So um, I kind of made my exit, segued back, backed away from him, and I went over to my cubicle and I called the cops. And um, and I said I got a you know there's a there's a burglary, and they said okay you know blah blah blah, and they said they put me on hold. <laughs> and then I, then they finally came back and they said, "So when did it happen?" I said, "It's happening now. He's in the building." She said, "He's in the building. Why didn't you tell us?" <laughs> so I mean, they, and then this guy was—he heard me and yeah. he bolted. He bolted out of the place and went running with my uh, pieces of my briefcase and yeah, whatever. Yeah. And um, 
And boy, the cops were there fast. I got down on the street and then I had to put my hands up because they thought I was the guy. Right, right, right. And I said, no, I'm the guy who called. This is the, you know, and so they had, they had a helicopter overhead. This is uh, not LAPD, but uh, this is West Hollywood. So it was Sheriff's Department. And they, they were there very, very quickly. And then people from the production company called later on, and I told them what happened, and because they there had been other things that had been taken, yeah. and so what happened is, you know, I lost um, this guy, absconded with a bunch of my Doors cassettes. Not not fortunately, nothing that could not be replaced, except that he took my grandfather's briefcase, uh. which was something that I was, you know, very proudly thought was cool. It's yeah, really yeah. neat old satchel looking kind of a briefcase, and. Um, uh, there might have been some notes or something, but he also all the photographs I'd taken out on the dude uh, set, which happy ending though. I found the negatives to many years later, like oh. af- after I moved up here, actually. Interesting. And I found them. You know, that's one of the advantages of moving is that you find a lot of stuff you think is lost. So I got those reprinted, and actually they're on my my website now Ah. so anyway but that was just um, they never found the guy and actually many it's like several months like six months later I got a phone call and they had found the briefcase and they had found stuff but it was just deteriorated he had stashed it under the steps or some bushes there on the on the compound and it had been rained on and deteriorated and all that stuff, but they had found that there was still some stuff in it that you know I was able to salvage a little bit of, but still the good stuff was gone. And uh, I- anyhow, uh, that was just kind of t- sort of typical of, of what was going on. I, I you know I remember coming home one day after work, you know, interviewing people, and I was just exhausted, and my head was swimming, and I you know I didn't know if I was making any progress at all. And I, and I literally, like, laid down to take that nap. And my head had hit the pillow, and the phone rang. And I picked it up, and I said, hello. And he said, Randy Johnson? <laughs> yes. And blah 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 here. I won't say who it was, because he's actually a, a very successful director now. But he was an actor at the time, uh-huh. an aspiring actor. And he said, I hear you're writing the, the Doors movie. <laughs> I said, uh, or, and he, said, he announced his name like we were old buddies. And I said, hi. And uh, good. We're good. I think we're um, good. And he, um, he said, well, I understand you're writing the Doors movie. And I said, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and he said, well, listen, you know, we got to get together because, you know, um, I'm a huge Doors fan and I'm, I'm the guy to play Jim. <laughs> and I said, well, listen, man, you know, um, thanks, but there's not even a script yet. It's a little premature. I, mean, I haven't even written this, finished the script yet. And um, frankly, you know, when it comes down to casting, I'm not going to, I'm going to be lucky to even, if they even ask me, you know, my opinion. And uh, so anyway, somehow I, you know, I got off the line. He called me up a couple, one other time. And literally, it was the same kind of circumstances. Middle of the afternoon, I was like trying to take a nap. <laughs> and he was, he said, I'm tripping. I'm tripping, man. I'm tripping. And I said, well, good for you. And he said, listen. He said, you got to know this. And he said, the, I had a dream last night. And guess who came to me in my dream? 
Jim Morrison. And I thought, Gee, um, I wonder. He said, Jim Morrison. He came to me in the dream, and he said, I'm the guy to play him in the movie. So we have got to get together, man. We've got to get together. And I'm just like, dude, dude, you know, don't call me when you're high. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like, but now he's a successful director. Yeah, it's fine. He's fine. He's on. <laughs> I won't say who it was, but but this was just kind of the nutty, bizarre circumstances that were you know just in the midst of all this, and I was, um, where I was trying really hard just to get through my find my way through it all, and, yeah, and I couldn't. And so I, you know, again, back to your whole thing. Could I have written a book? Yeah, um, I think in one sense after. I was off the project that I had all this, all this, all these interviews, and it was very. I thought, ah, nobody's nobody's going to want to read a book about it. And then subsequently, you know, I mean, for like every six months, there was a new Jim Morrison biography that was coming out, and I just sort of kicked myself for not doing it. It was, so, you know, what, the reason I I brought that up is because I remember hearing this interview with another another screenwriter, and they were talking about this other famous. I don't, I don't remember her name. But they were asking her, like, hey, you know, if you would ever were approached with this particular project again, would you, you know, write it the, the same way or write this project? She goes, she was, her response, I remember, was something like, like, hell no. She goes, I would write, I would write the book, I would write the play, I would write the movie. Basically, like, her <laughs> mindset was like, I would figure out a way to it milk it t- yeah. in, in all different facets, yeah. you know, and, and yeah. like her, her life lesson is what she learned after being a writer for so many years. Right. It's like, so that's when I thought about it too. It's like, wait a minute, holy cow. You know, I just had to ask you just because I remember that little, little snippet from some. Yeah. Well, some of this stuff, I'm actually, I, th- I think, going to attempt an, uh, a large article about it, you know, at some point. Yeah. Because I think there is enough stuff that in here that's kind of actually worth looking at in terms of a screenwriter's um, uh, approach to a, a daunting project, and that my kind of like my whole trip, my whole journey on this was, uh, it was, it was something, and yeah, it's something I, I, I earned some stripes on this one, I think. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Well, I think we'll we'll wrap it up here because okay. I think um, we can go into the next next. <laughs> I love it because we can next, go to the next one. We talk about the final release of um, dudes. We can yeah. talk about. Oliver Stone the, coming into this the, is the, the project. End. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is fantastic. Yeah. Believe me, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I said with a lot of screenwriters, and they, they do like a, a lot of the interviews they do with uh, screenwriters, even though I love what Jeff Goldsmith does, mm-hmm. they serve just kind of, he only has like an hour and a half to really kind of gloss over somebody's career. Mm-hmm. So the advantage that we have here is I get to ask these questions that I know. I'm just like a fan like anybody else going mm. like God, what, should, what would that be like if you had that moment you're like oh my god I'm on the job you know it's like or like I can't believe this is so surreal that I'd, that I'm working with the doors yeah. the doors yeah. and then like you but you got to step back and you're like now it's this work I got to just figure out and just talking about the little things about writing about like you know you realize you're 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 doing a service cuz you're just trying to get the story mm-hmm. but there comes a time sometimes where I guess you're, you have to ask yourself like, what kind of story do I want to see? Or like, what is it yeah. that, you know what I mean? That where's that little ounce of personal um, reward out of it. Um, especially when you're writing all these, you know, sort of pseudo autobiographies. Well, in not in autobiographies, the, I'm sorry. Yeah. In biopics or whatever. But right. in, in this particular case, 
Um, the more I got into it and the more information I began to uncover uh, and collect, the more and more it fueled my, I don't know, my passion for it, let's say. Um, it became my crusade. <laughs> I, I got you. I <laughs> to a degree to, um, to, in a sense, blow the whistle on the bullshit that had circulated about him for so many years mm-hmm. and, and in the very least try to tell, uh, attempt to tell some truth about him. Uh, but at the same time, uh, that was my undoing on the project. And so we'll leave it at that. There was oh. much conflict to come. Okay. You know, because it was not smooth sailing. Okay. Well, let you know where we ended. I remember when we finally saw the film. I think I was in senior high school. Yeah. It was a big, big deal for my buddies and I to go see this movie. So, you know, because you know, <laughs> it was a big, like, event. So, anyway. Well, well when I was in the, in the South Pacific earlier in this year, in, in March, um, there was a, I met a gentleman who was... Um, uh, uh, a politician serving in the parliament of uh, the island kingdom chain of Vanuatu and he found out that I wrote the doors and he just he he said I saw it in college <laughs> and, and of all places you know. this is this was in Australia but he grew up and has returned to Vanuatu out there in the deep south Pacific and he said oh man he said I'm so glad to meet you I said you really got it right and so it it never ceases to amaze me how powerful you know film and pop culture is really you know it's so far-reaching you know there's not a point in the globe anymore where it just doesn't go it is the greatest export that yeah the united states has yeah Yeah. and it will change it will change i mean it it will change worlds because you know doesn't matter how i mean the culture of these young people and all the all these little other countries Mm -hmm. i mean not to say westernize it but there is this romance idea of I think what these Western movies sort of represent mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that hits a psyche amongst you know the rest of the world yeah. and I think that's yeah. sort of sometimes becomes the root of you know revolution I mean yeah, hell sure. we were bombed I mean we were attacked nine eleven because of the stupidest things of like of they were they were citing you know Britney Spears like how could you have your women dressed like this right yeah you know it's yeah, like sure we were we were so like what that was the reason yeah but. Yeah. There you go. There anyway. You go. Yeah. Well, thanks for asking the questions, and thanks for giving me the opportunity, actually, to get into this in, in a certain amount of depth. You know, yeah, no. It I, just doesn't, you know, it, again, if this were any other interview, it would be... Gloss over. Very, yeah, oh, very so you got your... Yeah, yeah. You and then know, it's like, oh, okay, you're right, but... Yeah. The sound bites. Now, this is good. I mean, I'm cool. enjoying it, because cool. it's like, oh, uncovering and, and all this kind of stuff. Oh, but yeah. Now, it gives me the thoughts like, man, we should write a story about your adventure writing this stuff. Yeah. I don't know. Well, that, yeah. <laughs> I think that's in the works here at some point. I don't, yeah. So you were like, we're scratching the surface here. All right. Yeah. Well, here we are. I'm well, sure thanks. I got some good stuff. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you.